0: Why did you agree to do Libya Matters? I think
1: finding independent platforms that will give you your space to talk without any agenda is completely rare in Libya. It's really rare. When you contacted me, I I didn't think twice. I just said yes, because one, we need a platform like this. Two, we need the truth to be told and we need to raise awareness about what's happening. So I think it's a great uh, platform to do so.
0: Everything we do at LFJL is focused on accountability. But what does that really mean? And how do we achieve it? In this episode, we discuss how we can think outside the box and be more creative when seeking justice. Why we need to stay focused on the bigger picture when dealing with a crisis and where international law has its limit. Listen now for how accounting can be an avenue for justice. We're joined by Valentina Azarova, a formidable advocate at the forefront of some of the most innovative work in this field today. Valentina is a legal practitioner with 15 years experience who also teaches, researches and publishes on questions of international responsibility and the regulation of structural violence by international law. She's also a founding member of the Global Legal Action Network. As ever, Valentina brings a fresh perspective and challenges us in the best ways possible. Enjoy the episode.
1: Hi Elham. How have you
0: been? I've been good. Uh, I've really been getting into the flow of of Libya Matters and really enjoying our sessions this season. But I have to say, I I really miss having our guests in the room with us. Um, I'm finding the lockdown really difficult in that way. And I'm hoping we can find a way to do that at some point. So I have been thinking, do you think our listeners would enjoy a special sort of Libya Matters live event when this is all over? Uh, you know, get some of our guests in one place and have some of our listeners join us at the event live, others joining us by Zoom and having a real conversation um about everything that's been said in the season. so I've been playing around with that to kind of get over the sadness of not having us all in a room together. What do you think of that?
1: Wow, that's a lot of thought, but I think it's an amazing idea. Yeah. Uh, It would be great to bring some of the different themes we've been discussing um, over the season together into a more holistic conversation and then tying everything um, together. I think that's that's great. So um, but, you know, let's let's turn this over to our listeners and and um, and see what they think. Uh, So let us know by Facebook at Libya Matters. Or, or Twitter at Libya Matters Pod, if you think that would be a good idea. And if you want to um to see this, to, to participate in something like this.
0: Yeah. And I think today's episode is a really great example of this overlap that you mentioned, this kind of, you know, the fact that we, we are looking at so many different things in silos at the moment by the nature of a, an episode, but there's been so much overlap. So, you know, we've obviously delved quite deeply in this season in different kinds of pursuing accountability and different approaches. So we, you know, we talked about international criminal law with Alex Whiting and with sanctions last last, um, season with Wolfram. But we've also discussed quite regularly um, our frustrations at not being able to pursue certain states who have been very active in the Libyan conflict, whether that was with Wolfram, again, through the fact that the sanctions don't seem to work on those actors or obviously with Tarek Mujvisi in episode five and 13 about, you know, the increasing influence um, on the ground of international actors, both in terms of the process, but also in terms of facilitating the violations that are occurring. Um, and so today's episode kind of fits into that because it brings those two elements together in, in, in a really, I, I find engaging and, and really inspiring way. So it's, you know, it's about looking at how to pursue, third state actors um, that are not sort of, you know, the parties directly in the conflict in Libya, the Libyan actors, if you like, um, in kind of more innovative, creative ways than the traditional ones, which have always been an obstacle because of political will, because of the system that is set up, whether that's the UN and, you know, the veto we have at the Security Council or um, the apparent lack of appetite at criminal level in the in the ICC um, and how to pursue these powerful third actors in kind of an innovative way. And so I'm really, I'm quite excited about this episode, I have to say.
1: Oh, absolutely. Me too. Um, I think our guest today is one of the best people with whom to explore this. Um, She is an international legal academic and practitioner who teaches and writes on the law of third state responsibility and international legal practice of non-governmental organizations. Uh, that's yeah, uh, a visiting academic of the Manchester International Law Centre and the University of Manchester, and a legal advisor at the fantastic Global Legal Action Network. So um, welcome to Libya Matters, Valentina. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, welcome, Valentina. I, I can't wait to get stuck in. So much of what you work on is what we are asked about every single day. How can we pursue the difficult third state actors? How can we go after the big players the big boys of the international community how can NGOs do that how can you know small law clinics help with that how can academics you know how can we as academics help with that and so it's this really regular conversation we have but maybe before we get into the meat of this conversation we can just take a step back and and just set the scene a little bit so what do we mean by third state actors and why do we need to if you like have a special way of applying the law to them
2: Right. So I think you started by, by saying that much much of um, accountability work in, in conflict situations uh, and all sorts of other situations of structural violence focus on, on the actors that perpetrate the violence. Um, and the tools that international law gives us to, to do so are, are rather limited. And we can come back to that. We're looking at human rights law, international criminal law, um there are uh, actually very uh, a few um uh, uh legal institutions mechanisms uh, courts or, or other administrative processes that allow um for a uh, um an approach that captures the systems that perpetrate the violence right we usually go against individuals in the position of perpetrators, first of all. Uh, And we usually look at uh, specific acts, which are often the symptoms of of, uh, the problems that those systems have. So uh, one uh, way of shifting uh, towards a systems structural violence approach, which is key to addressing, uh, some of of uh, the kind of situations that uh, perhaps Libya fits into um, is to understand the broader universe of um, others who maintain uh, relationships with perpetrating uh, uh, actors, um, understanding the ways in which the the laws and institutions Of those actors that perpetrate the violence can be challenged as such. Um, And and that is possible by looking at the relationships that uh, the the perpetrators or the the institutions that perpetrate the violence have with third parties. Um, One area where I've I've done this work uh, is in the relationship uh, that Uh, Israel has with the European Union, over 60 areas of cooperation from research to trade to social security and so on, um, where uh, the privileged bilateral relations that the EU uh, maintains with Israel have have become a a setting, a landscape through which certain enforcement action uh, can take place. We've of
1: course seen so clearly that despite the best efforts of the panel of experts on Libya, sanctions have been forthcoming have not been forthcoming against any third state actor in Libya. We also can say with confidence that despite its white mandate in Libya, the International Criminal Court is unlikely to pursue non-Libyan actors in the in the Libya conflict. On on the other hand, we also know that the role of the international uh, actors have played in the conflict, and we also, uh, and also in the abuses faced by uh, migrants in Libya. Um, I have to say, I love the mission statement of GLAN, which is to challenge powerful actors involved in human rights violations and systematic injustice. So, before we go into the specific work that GLAN has done on Libya, maybe we can explore the different options we have. To go after the powerful actors.
2: So this is quite a challenging question. <laughs> it sort of asks to to think about the the various toolboxes of accountability, of of redress, of of social change uh, that we have as international lawyers, as human rights advocates. Um, so I, I think I mean again to to, to maybe. Um, take it to a a non-legal level, many of these tools and those you mentioned uh, are are some of them sanctions and international criminal justice, uh, pursue individuals, pursue specific actions that manifest in a very specific context, um, and uh, be those human rights violations or crimes... We fail uh, uh, through those tools uh, to capture the bigger picture. What I mean is that we're we're often very crisis and situation oriented when we're going to the UN uh, to address a particular uh, um, reality or phenomenon that's ongoing. Uh, or we're going to the EU, we're going to capitals, or we're trying to address, of course, those issues to to courts, international or domestic. There there is a particularity. In uh, in those cases, in those pursuits, of course, documentation and reporting work uh, by uh, the the leading uh, human rights um, civil society actors is also very much trying to to catch up constantly with the latest trend, with the latest horror, um, and and of course the relationship between uh, those leading NGOs and and the media which then fuels public opinion, is crucial in, in constantly moving the conversation and, and, and sort of hoping that the next thing will be the worst thing that will provoke a reaction, right? So I think um, and that, that, that's the reaction we're looking for from third parties, essentially the pressure from uh, outside a context where there is uh, no accountability, where there's a serious accountability gap, where there is a need for structural change for 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 complete reform um of the system, I think international law provides very limited tools in that regard um, but um but again, I you know i think I think more needs perhaps we need to talk a bit more about the the specifics. Of what to what end are are we pursuing certain actors? Really, is it retribution? Is it victims' rights? Is it compensation? Or are we looking for a a more again systemic uh, systems oriented change in relationships, in approaches, uh, in the positions that again powerful actors in a particular context will depend on the, the type of real privileged relationships that the wrongdoing actors have with. States or international organizations are they benefiting from some relationship uh, that they that 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 could be used as a leverage point right that could be used to to um, uh, not just punish or coerce as sanctions would do, compliance but indeed engage in something somewhat more sophisticated. Uh, of, of and perhaps uh, naive to put simply in, in those uh, general terms, but something that's closer to a social enforcement process, which we don't see in international law very very often, and we don't see uh, uh, happening uh, uh, in in the circles of human rights practice very often either. The the, the discourses are very retributive and very uh, punitive, uh, 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 the, the the anti-impunity work in the human rights uh, field uh, is, is exemplary of that.
0: I think that's a really interesting distinction that you're drawing that I'm not sure I have always consciously been aware of, in the sense that a lot of the tools that we rely on as NGOs, especially, um, or the toolkit that you explain, looks at either state responsibility for human rights violations so that's kind of the UN mechanisms and that's going after often the you know the states that are involved in in the, on the ground if you like so in this case Libya and then but the rest is very much it's true it's it's about pursuing individuals and um it's trying to address specific wrongs in both of those as opposed to systematic failures which which facilitate those wrongs and i think it's it's that kind of distinction of you know, curing, well, addressing the symptoms or curing the cause. And I think that's, I feel like it's a little light bulb that's gone off in my head. <laughs> Maybe I should have, it should have gone off a while ago, but I think that's where you kind of your work is looking at, right? It's very much trying to address those systems that then might facilitate specific harms that come up um, because the systems are never addressed. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of examples of that. The Israeli conflict is a, is, is a very, very strong one. I'm also thinking obviously here of the inability to pursue Accountability, really, in any sense, against the Gulf states because of their influence and their um, muscles financially and otherwise in 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 the powerful countries, quote unquote, and 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 you know how that brings them outside the realm of actually addressing the systematic systematic errors in the relationship between a lot of European and Western countries and those states, and then the impact that has, say, in a conflict like Libya. And it feels like I'm talking in code, so I'll spell it out a little bit more. Um, when we've been doing that kind of advocacy we do, which is very much about specific wrongs and, and you know, key violations that have occurred. And we uh, will pinpoint that, you know, part of the reason that's happened is because the weapons directly or indirectly have been supplied by Gulf actors. For example, the UAE, um, we've been told point blank in Western capitals, the UAE is untouchable because it's far more important to us than, than Libya and so pick another fight and and actually we've been told in the past if you think if you want to think about this pragmatically look at a couple of small uae companies that don't really matter to the state and go after them for sanctions if that will make you guys feel like you're doing something good but it's exactly what you're saying right it's it's the flip of what you're saying actually in the sense that you might get some um some traction in that way and some sense of satisfaction that you're moving the the needle a little bit but really what we need to be doing is realigning the whole compass, if you like, of international justice and very much addressing the root causes of this. And that's the systematic stuff. Have I understood you right? Because I feel like this is a real aha moment for me. And I might as well just end the episode here because I've learned a lot in this one first conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for, for provoking me to, to, to think in that direction
2: since I'd come on with a, with a more focused um, a set of thoughts about what this conversation was going to be about. Um, yes, I, I, I think that that's it, and it's an ongoing uh, process through uh, um, which I think we we also that that's the lens through which I practice international law and and, and human rights and social change work, um, and 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 much of that practice is actually. Um, perhaps sometimes validating that lens and perhaps reinventing it because there are cracks in in the wall and, and there are moments of, of of innovation that that we ourselves have discovered um, as uh, this this uh, the specific case of um, articulating the EU's administrative financial accountability or pursuing the the, the money that the EU is 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 paying. Um, essentially uh, its bouncers, if you will, at border forces, huh? the Lib- Libyan Coast Guard in this case, uh, but many other border forces. It's become quite a pervasive phenomenon of the EU uh, financially cooperating, so to speak. So it is a form of interstate, again, privileged dealing with all sorts of border forces that are intended to implement its Broader externalization policy, um, so that that in and of itself was a moment of discovery of some sort of well where perhaps some small amount of accountability uh, can can take place, uh, but it's patchwork, indeed.
0: I know Marwa is going to pick up on some of that in a in a moment, but I I wanted to sort of go back a little bit to when I first came across um, Glan's work, and it was very much in the context of. Uh, the application before the European Court of Human Rights, looking at the role of Italy um, in in pushing back migrants to Libya. And, and specifically, I think I remember very much sort of, you know, seeing these continuous, um, if you like, violations of, of the Italian state of previous european court decisions about the pushback policy and them trying to find them as well trying to be innovative with that and you know entering into agreements with libya where it's no longer about pushing back but libya pulling in and outsourcing that in you know and 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 i remember we going, gosh we we, sh- we should really be doing something about that and picking up the phone to a few lawyers and they're like yeah, yeah. someone is doing something about that glan is doing something about that and i'm like who the hell is glan <laughs> um, and i remember so i quickly went and googled and um I was in awe. It's like I thought I was being, you know, clever, and oh, I've, I found a way. And clearly, you guys had um, had got there already. But it was the, the time that I first was introduced to you was around the Sea Watch three situation, um, and uh, the you know where, where they were trying to rescue migrants in sea and, and the issues that were going with the Libyan Coast Guard. Then um, I don't especially I don't I know that you know you will tell me that this is not your file, um, but I wonder whether we can just take a few moments to explore not necessarily the details of that but how that idea came about and how it was happened and then where are we in that process now because it is a really it's a really powerful thing to take a european state to the european court of human rights there's a at the very least there's a naming and shaming element to it that's that's very uh potentially powerful
2: this is the ss versus italy case i suppose as it's known in in, and the Technical legal legal circles, but it's um it's also known I think slightly more colloquially as as Hersey two and Hersey is the is the judgment of the European Court of Human Rights where the court essentially said way back um, uh, that the. Uh, When the situation is very different uh, and Italy was involved physically in in pushbacks, um, that those pushbacks were illegal due to uh, the the illegal return, uh, refoulement, um, that they were causing. And of course, uh, as we know, what resulted from that legal uh, determination or or legal position was a rethinking of the policy and and infrastructure through which uh, the EU implements its externalization of borders and through which Italy, in in sort of being the the hands uh, of the EU uh, in in, um, executing that policy supports but does not physically um, uh, become involved in the um, pushbacks and now pullbacks of uh, migrant boats, interceptions uh, at sea and, and returns of these individuals to, to Libya. So we have Frontex, we have the, the Italians, we have all sorts of support, remote control support to the Libyan Coast Guard to make sure they do the job uh, right, if, if you will, of course. Uh, there are a lot of uh, hiccups in the process, and the EU is fueling it with financial support. That's essentially the setup now. Both the EU and Italy have taken administrative distance sufficient to ensure that the European Court of Human Rights can't, under its traditional understanding of jurisdiction, can't Come to bite them. Um, and yet, of course, uh, I mean our orientation as Glan and our partners in this ASG have uh, uh you know long been aware of the limits of of uh, uh human rights law's jurisdictional uh, sort of reach, right? Um i think uh, that that is a problem that that goes uh, far beyond this context human rights beyond borders is 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 sort of a, a a more structural problem of international law that we think are are looking to address in, in a number of our other um work uh streams and and legal actions but in this case uh this the the, the concept of uh, to use Violeta in alaxis uh uh, Another's term, contactless jurisdiction, right? Remote control uh, 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 pushbacks uh, had to be invented, so to speak, by us, right? As a challenge, as an articulation of a protest, a contestation that's not just contesting the particular actions of Italy in this case. It's against again a case against Italy again, right? The EU does not get captured in this case, unfortunately. We can come back to that. But um, also, in a sense, it is a way of saying with this, we are in the age of impact jurisdiction, right? And, and, and the, the Human Rights Committee's general comment on the right to life, uh, general comment 36, is an important moment for international lawyers because the Human Rights Committee essentially interpreted uh, the right to life to say that decisions made, administrative decisions made within the territory of one state that have an impact, Elsewhere can be captured can 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 be held to account due to the nature of that impact. So the physicality of the presence of, of the, the, the the first state's uh, uh, agents on the territory of the second state are not decisive. So we're we're pushing in that direction, and that sort of is an example of how uh, many of our legal actions as clan have been constructed. Right, idea that the idea that there are um, critical. Academic um, uh, 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 well efforts to to change certain realities that are propped up by law, and international law is is certainly part of the problem in in many areas. We can come back to arms trade law as well, and, and arms export control law, and, and there's there's work we do we do on that to to expose the ways in which powerful actors. Uh, be it defense companies or licensing states, are are enabled by the ambiguities of law to uh, to continue to to sell arms and so on and and, and enter into a defense cooperation agreements again um, without accountability. But there are opportunities there as well, which we which we are trying to um, to seize. But I didn't answer your question about where the, the, the SS versus Italy case is now. Um, well, it's before the court. There have been many interventions. I, I can't remember the number. Uh, certainly about a dozen uh, third-party interventions by academic institutions uh, and, and NGOs, leading NGOs. and um, uh, and, and we're still waiting for uh, for for the adjudication for the court's uh, uh, work on on this case um, the, there there may be you know, more subtle developments but I think that will will set those aside for now in the interest of our non-legal <laughs> listeners
1: very fascinating um, and the initiatives are are great and I think that this kind of looking at um, ways by which to tackle policy through uh, the legal channels, and I think that this is very particular with the uh, with the migration um, with the migration file. Having worked for years on on the advocacy front of trying to change that policy, um, that just doesn't budge. They don't flinch. It doesn't matter. But I think that looking at how we can challenge that through legal channels. Um that that would then possibly and hopefully set something a bit more concrete in action is really um the way forward, I would say. And so um I think that what I find so interesting in what GLAN does is using what appears like very uh boring procedural mechanisms to pursue that that accountability. And 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 so it's but I also do want to say it's not just legal accountability, but it's also hopefully policy change, right? So in that going back to the to the structural um, aspect of it, that it forces them to change um, to change course. And um, so in one of these, which i I thought personally um, was a fascinating approach was uh, the European Court of Auditors and how that was used um, uh, to, to address uh, you know, the, the migration uh, challenges um, and, and how that has been uh, played out in, in, in Libya. So if I Google uh, the, uh, the Euro- European Court of Auditors, it tells me it is one of the seven institutions of the EU and uh, is there to look after the interests of EU taxpayers. So, uh, and that was then how this, uh, the importance of this case that was uh, the, um, or not
2: not a case, but it was a, um, a letter. Complaint. The, fr- the framing there, it was a submission framed as a complaint uh, precisely because it was, it was, um, they're also <laughs> uh, claiming a right to participate in decisions uh, around the use of EU taxpayer money, as, as you put it. Uh, so, so so, in a sense, it was, it was narrated and, and we're very much in, amidst the narration of a Of an account of financial accountability, sort of avenue, which wasn't there to be to be uh, um, pursued as such. It's sort of a a dirt road we've taken, and trying to figure out where it leads.
1: And that's the innovation in itself. But could you give us maybe a step through of how that? uh, how that helps the situation in Libya and how that kind of um, innovative thought process to approach this.
2: Essentially, it came about at a moment of frustration. And, and um, as as you will recall, Marwa, um, we uh, started conversations sort of around early 2019, um, essentially, against the thick background of all sorts of human rights challenges, uh, the, the, the the pending ICC communication uh, by the two lawyers that last summer uh, on on um, crimes against migrants, um, uh, and 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 primarily on the EU's complicity in all this, right? It really was a, a question of how do we get at the EU's role because the EU was not. Party to uh, uh, the the European Court of Human Rights cases, it is uh, not uh, really in a position of, of an accomplice from international criminal laws perspective. Right, there's a unfortunately again the law is not on our side. The chain of causation is disrupted by by all sorts of things. There arguably. Um, and and so it was it was a question of how do we how do we trigger EU administrative law? Which EU administrative law do we do we look at? Uh, because uh, uh, because that's what binds EU institutions when they act externally, and this is a form of external action. To support financing Italy in 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 in, in this uh, migration cooperation uh, framework. Um, so, uh, in conversations with all sorts of uh, uh, human rights actors, uh, lawyers, leading NGOs, and so on, uh, we tried to we started off ma- mapping how do we get to the EU? What have we done so far? Aside from calling on the EU and advocating before the EU to revise and 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 and, uh, and really end uh, this this migration cooperation um, with with Libyan actors. Um, and uh, it was actually my experience, I should say, not not related thematically, perhaps, but uh, but certainly um, inspired by work I'd done uh, in the uh, Israel Palestine context in relation to unlawful destruction of properties by Israel um, of of structures that were EU funded by Israel in 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 the West Bank. So humanitarian structures of the EU and other humanitarian. Agencies funded uh, for years were destroyed by Israel, and in, in, as part of a broader policy of displacement of Palestinians from Area C, where which is now about to be uh, uh, annexed uh, de jure and had been annexed de facto, et cetera. Um, what happened there, uh, uh, to be brief, is that the the EU was made through the sort of technical work at, at the level of exposing its own. EU budget law breaches for ignoring these disruptions and allowing millions of dollars to be wasted on the years, the EU eventually accepted that those destructions were unlawful and claimed compensation to be, to be sort of accrued about it. Um, and and I was involved in this efforts and, and a bit acquainted with uh, EU uh, financial management law and accountability, which which is very stringent, powerful, and uh, perhaps unsurprisingly much more so than the human rights framework, which. Uh, which in 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 contexts like uh, financial cooperation or arms trade, it ends up being uh, understood through this due diligence prism, right? This sort of we'll do our best, but we don't have to achieve any result, right? But in financial management, you actually have to protect the budget, so. Um, Proposing that to other NGOs uh, who have done a lot of advocacy and human rights work was 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 rather straightforward because everyone said, "Well, that sounds like a great idea," and we also within our human rights focused mandates can't <laughs> pursue this. This is too technical. Doesn't really fit, um, and it, and and moreover, it's not international law per se. It's it's EU internal. Law. Um, uh, but that is, sort of again, uh, part of, of the sort of innovation that, that we're trying to, to pursue uh, as GLAN uh, as well, um, because I mean, a transnational law, so to speak, areas of domestic and internal law, like financial management, like consumer protection law, like anti laundering, are actually very powerful, much more powerful than a lot of other uh, uh, sort of areas of soft international law. Um, so, uh, we, we consult, we, the first port of call was consulting with some serious EU budget law experts who ended, some of which ended up writing, uh, an expert opinion that we, uh, uh, submitted along with the, uh, uh, quote unquote complaint, right? We knew very well that there's no formal complaint process with the European court of auditors. It's a court only in name. Uh, it has specialist judges, uh, uh, that review the use of the budget, but essentially scrutinize the commission's decisions in relation to, to the use of, of EU taxpayer money. Um, and, and also they can they can scrutinize such decisions, but they can't annul any funding programs. So their sort of expert opinion will then have to be taken seriously by the commission because parliament will rally behind it. So there's a certain tripartite constellation there between this, this, this watchdog, financial watchdog type body the Parliament, which has budgetary authority, so it's a constitutional law issue from from the EU's perspective, and right? Parliament has the right to check how how especially European development money uh, is used. And then the Commission, which is really in the in the driver's seat for the whole thing. Um, and and the reason we ended up there is also because there's there's actually no, I should say this there's no direct sort of highway to the European um, Court of Justice. Right, Luxembourg is the court that reviews uh, eu institutions actions and and there is no there's there's very limited the limits of standing for ngos are basically sort of create a de facto you know no non non sequitur for for that sort of uh, route um, there's there's an interesting case recently right the the train uh, ngo in the netherlands using special sort of dutch law causes of action Called collect, collective action to, to challenge the use funding of road construction using forced labor in Eritrea. So another funding financial cooperation, but that's because Dutch law provides that very special collective action route. Uh, um, but but that's a unique uh, case, I should say. Um, and anyway, so we end up in this in this administrative procedure um, where where we are uh, uh, now. Still, the European Court of Auditors has responded to our submission. Uh, um, complaint, uh, and said that they will review it as part of their regular 2021 budget reviews. Um, what's <laughs> your coming up um, sort of the in the first quarter supposedly of 2021 which sooner than 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 a, a hearing would have been scheduled with with a court uh, but what we need to do in the interim uh, is is do a lot of advocacy work with the Parliament so we're really working now with a lot of MEP political uh, advisors and groups uh, to to streamline uh, this this um, Complaint and the issues it raises through through parliament various parliamentary committees um, through what's called a petition to Parliament which we just submitted uh, the other week um, and that might also uh, land us uh, if, if if we're lucky uh, and if parliament is is the is, is uh, brave let's say with the anti-fraud office of the EU called Olaf. So we're, we're hoping that there might still be an even more hard-edged institution that will review these, these serious budgetary um, misuse issues that we've uh, identified.
0: Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on Donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. A part of me is, is elated at what you're saying. And then a part of me, the kind of human rights lawyer, is deflated because, you know, I always thought that we had the tools, so it was the political will. But actually, the more this conversation <laughs> progresses, I'm like, well, the tools are problematic as, as well as the political will. I'm also having this other conversation in my head where I'm, I come from a house full of bankers. And my father's always been of the view of really the only way you affect change is, is the money following the money, cutting off the money, everything else is secondary. And I've always been very kind of idealistic and fighting that, but I'm not, I'm going to make sure he doesn't listen to this episode because I need, <laughs> I need to have my moral high ground and to say, yes, actually the only way we're, succeed- <laughs> there's any success of accountability is by, by these mechanisms But you know, joking aside and my own personal, um, you know, family issues <laughs> around my career choice aside, um, I find this, you know, fantastic because um, it's not what that mechanism was designed for. And I think it would be brilliant to flip it in that way, you know, mm. um, and to really create this precedent where, you know what, actually everything comes down to one thing and that's how people treat people. And whether we have to go through money or that way we go through something else, we still get to this one place. And I just, I, I think that's so inspiring um, and fascinating in, in so many ways um, and just wants me to kind of go back and and scratch my head a lot more. And, you know, my previous life, I was a finance lawyer, and I, I kind of disengaged from that previous life thinking that, you know, that was a a blemish on my human rights career, and I should, you know, focus. And now I'm going, no, I'm going to dig up all my, um, all my finance law knowledge and, and try to make some use of it. And we have tried to explore some of that, actually, um, in the Libyan context, um, in the sense of trying to look at some of the corruption in Libya and linking that to the violations that are occurring as well, because obviously we've seen a lot of internal issues of how the money in Libya spent on, and that's a different episode. But I think it, it, it is a really interesting avenue to pursue and uh, perpetrators of human rights don't flinch much, like Marwa said, if you tell them about how bad they are, but they get really upset if you catch touch their pockets. And I think that's kind of, there's a real, there's a real moment there to seize. Um and then the other element of this is actually looking at what appear to be domestic or regional mechanisms that don't obviously link to a third country like Libya. And so I think that is the other bit that's really um, great about this. It's using, you know, in the in the in this in this instance EU mechanisms in the one you mentioned Dutch, but also we've seen attempts in the UK of pursuing um, you know the budget that the UK has been using to you know in towards of aid in Libya and that's been questioned several times. Um and also we you know we've been involved in a, on a on a smaller scale on on two foreign affairs committees investigations um over the last 8 years one was looking at the intervention in libya and whether it was um appropriate um by the uk government and the second one which was more recent was looking at the eu's contribution the sorry the uk's contribution to eu migration policy uh and that again had an element of looking at you know the kind of involvement there and whether the UK behaved appropriately. And and those are all domestic mechanisms that are actually not specifically there to deal with what happened in Libya, but looking at those who action things domestically or, or at the European level. But I do think they give avenues to break the chain at some point, because if you can stop that, you know, if it turns out that that was unacceptable from a parliamentary procedure like a foreign affairs committee or an EU procedure like the auditors, then, you know, you don't, it doesn't matter if the chain gets broken at this level, it still will impact on what happens in Libya. And I think that's where there's room to be um, to be creative. So that's my bit of praising. Um, then comes the obvious criticism, which we always have when we talk about these innovations, because in the Libyan context, at least, the, these innovations have only really been used in the context of the migrant file, which is a really important file. And obviously one we dedicate a lot of time to at LFJL. But there's always the question of, can can anything similar be done for everything else that's going on you know all there's so many third states that are complicit in the libyan war whether it's providing arms breaching the arms embargo um you know breaching the ceasefire that was agreed at the un level um actually you know sending in mercenaries using uh you know landmines now we've just found recently and they are you know all these things are are linked to entities and are, and there's a lot of evidence and like mention like marwa mentioned the panel of experts has named several of those um, third state actors. And yet we see nothing coming out of, you know, the UN system. So you have the panel of experts suggesting very clearly what the wrongdoing is, and then there's nothing action by the Security Council for very, very obvious reasons. Um, and so where can we bring this innovation to the context of stuff, perhaps beyond the more straightforward migrant file? Because obviously there are, there's, you know, very clear money flows and very clear agreements that are, that are signed between the states and the EU, et cetera. Do we have hope to pursue other people?
2: It's an extremely good question and, and difficult question for me to answer having not thought about it very much, uh, before this this conversation. But let me make let me maybe take a step uh back in terms of what What is this unique perspective really opening the doors to? And I think what you were just saying about following the money and, and financial, uh, um, well, I mean, looking at uh, the way that money, uh, uh, financial misconduct, financial offences um, uh, down the chain transnationally, again, linking with, with more actors to hold to account. Um how those those types of transactions can sustain whether it's corrupt acts and that we already have an international anti-corruption law some framework on bribery and so on and domestic jurisdictions have very very strict laws on that banks are affected by that uh, companies are affected by that Th- those sorts of risks to amplify those sorts of risks would be very powerful. I, I remember conversations, initial conversations about uh similar risks uh uh um uh in, in the Syria context. And I think Reconstruction is going to bring all that up again. Uh right. So financial uh, looking at corp- economic actors, looking at finance, um that 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 is its own universe, and there's a lot there's a lot of new investigation to do there, perhaps, uh, whether it's Libya or elsewhere. but uh, in terms of the the sort of toolbox that human rights uh, organizations advocates are using, that that's certainly uh, a potential direction for for innovation um but but really at a at a broader level i you know would would want to to spend a, a bit of time thinking about the types of of links that can be uh, um you know mapped out with third party actors um, be it through uh, claims of diversion of arms, right, sales of arms to act to to other states like the UAE that that divert them to, so that's one sort of, if you will, a chain of custody or or supply chain or or whatnot, through which some level of accountability, some level of scrutiny and 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 um, disruption can can occur at, at at the at the side of this chain where there is. Um, an actor uh, like a European state subject to certain um, still <laughs> certain legal standards by way of the eu uh, common position on arms exports by 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 way of the arms trade treaty and so on so I guess this is a roundabout way of saying that that there's a lot of investigation of certain shadow world dealings with actors at the sort of Maybe individual uh, uh economic level that that may implicate uh you know this situation in Libya. It doesn't have to be the perpetrators themselves directly, it could be the environment, right? And and there, you know, again, disruption is possible. But I'm I'm afraid, you know, I have to say in the same breath that these these are unsatisfactory to me, of course. I mean, this is this is really um uh, the sort of approach that, to to disruption that that you know only does work at one end, right? I mean, the reform work still requires a very different type of social movement oriented, um, you know, thinking. Really, in in in, in our current era, um, that it that has been laid bare uh, very very much. <laughs> um, But um, but I think I'll think I'll end there with with this very challenging question. Indeed, Um, I think there are many opportunities we're not aware of um, as as human rights advocates. And it goes back to to our initial um, conversation about what uh, what what our vision is seeking more of. Right. We're fueling a particular.
0: I think that question is um, is, you know, it's intended to be tricky because I don't I don't think there is a a straight word fix which is why we're we are in the situation we're in but one example that we kind of look to which I which I think is relative successful is a very generous word but relatively interesting is the pursuit of of the weapons that were sold to Saudi Arabia in the context of the Yemen um of the Yemen conflict here through parliament and I think that's worth looking at because you know we often think that the the arms industry so powerful and their lobby so strong and that you could never really tackle that and I think what happened on the Yemen file is so exceptional which might might be the exception that proves that rule but it is worth taking a moment to maybe use that as a positive um, example of what could be achieved um, in, in you know within a limited scope because um, there what we saw was. Uh, a lot of very hard work done to tra- sort of trace weapons that were sold by the UK or UK you know approved by the UK government to be sold by UK arms companies to Saudi Arabia, which was then implicated in, in you know in um, in at least one incident of, of of mass civilian death in in Yemen. Um, and actually that was found to be in breach of the of the you know UK law on on arms trade and and had a very negative impact on the on Saudi Arabia's ability to secure more weapons in that same context, obviously, they, they can source them from other, from other places. But I think there is a lot of power in a case like that, because not only does it, you know, break that chain that we've been talking about, but it also sends a message to, you know, to certain countries that their suppliers will stop supplying them if they continue doing this, not because they don't want to supply them, but because they'll be prevented by legal mechanisms from supplying them. Um, and I think there is I can't remember whether Glenn worked on that case or not, but I think it was a, it was such a powerful, the useful tool. Um, and yeah, it, it and it created a good precedent in what you can be doing at a parliamentary level and a domestic level to prevent violations that seem so far away. But
2: Glenn, Glenn didn't work on the campaign against... Arms trade case uh, uh, directly—that's that that's the case you're referring to, which which was successful. It's still pending uh, before the Supreme Court. The government's appealing that decision. Uh, but um, but yes, in the interim, uh, it has disrupted significantly all all the the various flows of arms between the UK um, and, and a number of members of the coalition involved in Yemen. Uh, what what GLAN did do, however, is submit evidence on a number of occasions with Mwatana uh, for Human Rights, the Yemeni NGO. And uh, we've also, what we, what we did around uh, um, September last year is convenes uh, practitioners from from at least uh, half a dozen jurisdictions in Europe and elsewhere working on yemen links um arms export litigation to try to understand some of the frustrations there with a, with a view to to uh pushing back against those frustrations in in achieving domestic accountability so the, there's significant gaps there's a lot of potential and a lot of best practice and and, and uh, um and promising moments uh, indeed and then the cat case in the UK is, is perhaps one of them, their their successes in, in in Belgium and and in France, so things uh, beginning to to right these legal battles which are ongoing very much, and, and the Yemen moment of of uh, you know the involvement of uh, exposing the involvement of so many European North American uh, arms suppliers in that conflict uh, was was has been. Ongoing uh, effort, uh, significant to also, um, yeah, re-engaging us as practitioners with the law uh, that the, the various laws, in fact, that can challenge unlawful arms transfers that can articulate responsibility for complicity through such military and technical assistance. Um, There there are various gaps in those laws or gaps in the procedures that enable accountability for those laws. But those are struggles in and of themselves uh, that that we are certainly uh, involved in in a number of ways, including uh, recently by way of of supporting and working together with Lighthouse Reports and their EUarms.com uh, investigations platform uh, where uh, uh, there's ongoing work on on mapping out the, the big EU exporters, uh, sort of arms uh, uh, flows to various other con- contexts and conflicts.
1: That links very well to my next question, which is um, around securing the right evidence. So one of the obstacles that we've, you know, we constantly face is um, in pursuing this kind of work is securing evidence. we now have uh, a fact finding mission for Libya uh, as of last week. so I think right now it's it's very important on how and on how that is shaped and, and structured and and how they move forward. but I think that um what's most important is what should be. Um, what should this fact-finding mission be doing to make sure it looks into, into the matters um, that we would like to then have a chance of actionable evidence from
2: it? So I have to to admit ignorance here because I haven't looked into the particular mandates of the fact-finding mission or the various shortcomings or the criticisms and so on, but but I'm very familiar with the types of uh, <laughs> criticisms that that can come uh with with these various uh sort of fact-finding mechanisms that have been rolled out for decades in the in the Israel-Palestine context which I've worked on for perhaps much too long and um I think things, uh, you know, ev- ev- evidence standards um, are, are are key, really, because I think we're 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 looking at these mechanisms always as a as a as a stepping stone, as a means to an end, as, as not just a a way of, um, you know, a, a, a concrete way of articulating it is is the way that the triple for Syria is is thinking of itself right? Could Qu- quasi. Uh, uh, um, prosecutorial body, right? Short of making determinations about certain international crimes having been committed or not, uh, certain individuals or, 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 or systems being part of those uh, violations. It it really needs to get to the uh, you know very last point before a court and, and a set of judges can address those issues. And I think that many many of the criticisms or many of the uh, attempts to improve upon uh, these sorts of bodies um, uh, efforts, at least in the Palestine context, has always been. I've, I've always focused on, uh, are, are, you know, the, the, the standards of evidence, are they collecting names? Are they pushing the limits of, um, you know, uh, cooperation with some of these, uh, uh, you know, w- with the perpetrators themselves in order to understand, understand sort of command chain, uh, structures, uh, to, to, um, Really uh, gain as much intelligence around the uh, situation. So I think, and and you know, uh, more more entrepreneurial uh, justice type uh, uh, bodies like CJ, uh, the Commissioner of International Justice and Accountability, in the Syria context, are also interesting uh, mechanisms. Just to say because they sometimes can be more powerful than the UN uh, established uh, fact finding missions, given that they're committed to to this quasi prosecutorial approach. Um, so I, th- I think, I think t- they, they, these fact-finding missions need to remember they're not about advocacy, they're about getting, getting, uh, the, 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 fuel ammunition for, for a serious, uh, criminal, uh, justice, uh, accountability process to, to come. Um, yeah, that, that'll, that's, I think, a highlight of, of much of the, the conversations I've been involved in in relation to fact-finding missions. I think the Yemen Yemen efforts are certainly going in a similar direction. But I think one 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 additional thing to throw in there is, is the importance of, in, in the broader scheme of UN-led... Fact-finding missions and accountability efforts—a holistic approach approach to accountability is really is really missing. And I wonder—I mean, it doesn't all have to be within one fact-finding mission, but uh, but that is something that I think again is out of the frame for for much of our our thinking. And Yemen definitely requires that sort of that the intersectional. Analysis that some of our work around, you know, that how many arms are being sold and how much destruction those arms are causing versus how much development money is then coming, uh, you know, by but with the other hand to to try to fix that destruction. These these sort of things don't come out uh, unless um, unless yeah we narrate them right. That otherwise they're siloed within the thinking of policymakers uh, and and. And we need to do more thinking ourselves about how to expose the, the 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 intersectionality of a lot of these structural violence processes.
0: One of the issues I've always had with fi- fact finding missions is that they seem to be an end in themselves. From the UN perspective, it's like we've given you a you know a fact finding mission. That's it. You've you've done it. Like what you've asked with us has been achieved. But actually, you know what gets lost is the fact that well, they're meant to be an, a means to an end and not an you know not an end in itself. And I think that's a little bit, I think what you comment about them being for advocacy purposes, almost that the fact that they exist is a good thing, but actually that's not, that's not the point because if they don't come up with really strong, actionable evidence that can be then used by other mechanism, you don't have a holistic perspective on justice. You just have these in like independent little sparks that don't, you know, lead up to anything and and are are, you know, in some ways more frustrating than helpful. Um, but maybe that's a, a super negative way, <laughs> negative way that we're heading in. Um, so I, I want to kind of, uh, there's so much to, to talk about. And I've, I've got such a long to-do list of things to read and to look up and to, um to think about. So thank you so much for that. But I think one of the things I wanted to pick up on is, you know, we've talked quite a bit about what GLAN does, but I also think the way you do it, how you do it is really, is really interesting that you know, it's it's a network and it very much is a network um, by title and by and by the way it works. Um, the fact that you have, you know, some incredible academics at, at the top of their game, working with investigative journalists and activists to come together. It makes it so easy to then understand why the work is so innovative, because you have such different ways of thinking, brainstorming together. And so maybe just to kind of end on a, an inspiring positive note of collaboration, we could hear a little bit about, you know, how that, what that looks like, that kind of academia meeting practice, because normally we think that those are loggerheads, right? But in reality, this, you need both for something like this to work. Um, and, you know, how you work with partners, and, and you know, and, and I know you also work with some law clinics as well. And that kind of really, you know, small, small letter civil society coming together is such a powerful thing. And, and you've achieved so much purely, you know, because of the way you work. So maybe you can inspire us to be more collaborative.
2: Thanks for that. That's uh, I mean I, I always start with <laughs> Glenn is a is a is a bird with big feathers and, and we look bigger than we are, but but it but it is quite an expansive network when, when we need certain experts uh, on certain issues we realize that we have quite quite a lot of people to, to draw on and, and, and indeed some of the most experienced academic practitioners or practitioner academics uh, both both uh, in, in, in the various fields, uh, that we, that we've sort of identified as our focus areas, migration, border violence, uh, complicity in war and occupation, supply chain, accountability, and climate justice. Um, how we work. I think, I think there's a very, at least because we are, many of us are standalone experts in, in various areas, um, more than, more than one of the four that I mentioned. Um, and we've, we've all of us come with with over a decade of work and and thinking and and struggle really a sort of a at least a mini professional life dedicated to um head scratching over you know what is the problem and how to address it uh, of a particular issue for many of us, law comes second. it's not the thing we think about first um we we um we try to understand what role law plays. Um, and and you know in academic terms, this is sort of the critical legal thinking tradition, so on, which usually tries to dismiss law and says you know law is, is a problem. Um, and uh, uh, you know I think skepticism towards the law is just is missing. Uh, and I, I've spent about almost fifteen years with, with different NGOs in different areas, and so I'm much more a practitioner than an academic, but um, but there there's yeah there's, there are frustrations with with the way NGOs what we as NGOs do do our work um, that that many of us have right. We, there is a sense that you know <laughs> that that human rights is uh, is uh, is not the language that we really want to be using and the tools etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't. I think we all embody those anxieties that the, that restlessness. But feel sometimes constrained by you know the the human rights practice world, so I think we're we're as glenn we're trying to to bring together both of these sets of, of concerns with the academics being a bit too dismissive and and the the practitioners being a bit too um bogged down in their ways um but I, and 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 when it comes to actually initiating a particular conversation around a particular action and and figuring out the the contours of it I think it really is about being organic and having those conversations, which seem to not always happen. It's not about you know, reactive action. For instance, for us at least, I mean again, often it has been the case in my experience with NGOs. It's about trying to to, to figure out what's an ongoing effort by so many different actors to address an issue is is trying to get at but not able to get to, right? So we're jumping but not high enough to to grab something. Why? Because well the platform we have does not enable us to to get there. And so it's, it's, it's sort of ontological, if you will, it's sort of existential in the sense of we're trying to capture the limits of certain law and processes that are being used by human rights actors, but at the same time, find new hooks, new traction um, to, to articulate uh, uh, and, and pursue and really to contest power relations um, and, 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 and and forms of inequality. I mean, essentially, at, at the at, at the very core, I think we are concerned uh, globally about uh, the the dynamics that are you know, being laid bare by our current predicament, uh, but that but that are you know can be found in those very specific areas of arms trade or financial uh, 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 flows or whatnot, but but need, need to be at some moment taken as a whole, right? We, we sort of constantly push ourselves to come back to an idea of there is something uh, a holistic here in, in understanding even what international law does to us as a global society by way of global governance. And that's when we end up back in the classroom or with clinics or with you know uh, uh, various sort of academic forms of engagement, research and, and writing. Um, so I think for many of us, this has sort of been a way of existing in, in, in all cases uh, before uh, GLAN came to be in two thousand fourteen or so, um, and now and now we have a, a communion, a, a home of sorts to to, to do this together in.
3: Hi, I'm Elise Fletcher and I work on advocacy for human rights accountability at LFGL. In this LFGL Explains, I'm going to talk about innovative ways to seek accountability for human rights violations in Libya. So when it comes to the Libyan conflict, there's quite a few mechanisms in place already that have a mandate to address different types of international law violations. And yet, it can be frustrating to see that some third states that have been active in the Libyan conflict and seem to have some responsibility for violations place, still seem unreachable and difficult to hold to account for diverse reasons. So that's when it becomes essential to explore other avenues and to think creatively. How can we pursue those powerful actors in an innovative way? In addition to what Valentina describes in this episode in terms of possible avenues, at LFJR we're looking at other creative routes to hold such states accountable for their actions in Libya. So last year, for example, we took part in an inquiry launched by the Foreign Affairs Committee of the British Parliament that looked into the migration policies implemented by some European states in the Mediterranean. And we highlighted the negative impact of these policies on the human rights of migrants. Along with other NGOs, we're also increasingly looking at holding accountable third states that are violating the Libyan arms embargo by supplying weapons that are then used to commit violations of international humanitarian law in Libya and therefore contribute to perpetrating the conflict. So I guess the innovative aspect of such tools lies in the fact that they're not necessarily the most straightforward routes that you would think of primarily when you seek to reach accountability for human rights violations. But when successful, they are powerful because they address systemic issues and state policies that facilitate all these other human rights violations.
1: We've come to the end of of that segment uh, of the questions, and now we're going to move on to the debunking narrative. So, the idea so I will ask you a question, and so the idea is it's a quick, you know, off the top of your head uh, response. And basically, it's not necessarily a question, it's just a narrative that's been used against certain, um, uh, you know, certain arguments around this field. And, And so what would you say to debunk that? So, with that being said, let's get started. One of the common narratives that we hear is when it uh, when it comes down to it, international law is only really
2: used to pursue to pursue the global south. I think if we take seriously the um, the focus on use of international law, then then in some areas and uh, on certain issues, that that may be true. Uh, but law is is there to be used. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in certain situations, the hegemons, the powerful actors, are those who are in charge of how it is used and, and what the public perception about its use uh, ends up being. So that is true, but also false, because it's not the only ways in which law can be used. And that's for us to
0: decide and change. I like that. It's empowering. Um the the next one um we hear a lot in this context this is all inspiring but the only violations that really get covered in libya are those against migrants it's
2: true that from an eu perspective or from a european audience perspective and i think also from the perspective of many international Human rights actors, NGOs, uh, there is a focus on uh, migration as a result of these sensationalists' reporting uh, um, and, and uh, focus on the central Mediterranean, um, which is, it's, it's not, you know, it's not unreasonable in its own right. Um, but from the perspective of Libya, the focus on migration is certainly a focus on secondary, um, issues and that has become a preoccupation that's, uh, had an opportunity cost and, uh, perhaps it's, it's a, 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 a narrative that, uh, Libyan accountability actors should be, um, uh, looking to um, undo uh, certainly, but also revise somehow to um, place that a uh, uh, potential account of the potentially promising accountability avenue of of, of saying that there is, um, you know, a, a, a way in which migration has and migration cooperation has exacerbated and entrenched the. Uh, the realities in Libya, right? So there is a dimension there that 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 is true uh, and and necessary to address in the same way that Yemen uh, accountability work has focused on arms trading actors uh, much too much sometimes the detriment of a lot of other issues and, and accountability agendas. Um, that is perhaps the cost of internationalization uh, of certain issues: the need to to um, uh, bring in. Uh, the, the involvement of other actors but uh but that is yeah not the only way to to do that
1: uh and finally, one that I've heard uh, many times is that legal accountability takes too long to change the reality on the ground it does,
2: <laughs> but so do all other social and political processes um and 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 yeah, and it should certainly not happen in isolation from from those other processes
0: yeah. i don't speak to you nearly as much as i would like to and it was such a treat to have this much time to kind of you're so um you're so lucid and i love it it's just sort of
2: i don't know no i, I could i could be more punchy given how how um great some of your other guests have been but um but wow these are really really sort of to to to, to be really clear it just injected a bunch of professional, healthy anxiety, anxiety in me again, because I mean, this is why I love teaching students anyway, because it's, it's sort of the, the, you know, it really explaining the basic things that are, that seem so banal and oh day to day, right? Like the sausage making machine of, of human rights, watch your amnesty press releases and, 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 and reports and, you know, tweets and... You know, how can that existence be the human rights career they're choosing, right? And how do you how do you get to them to say that this is not the only way to do it? Huh? And so you have to you have to really unpack everything that's inside you.
0: Yeah, it's been a real sort of soul searching journey. This much more than I expected this uh, this episode. But um, but I'm also thrilled for your students because you know having that kind of teaching, which re- really makes you think about things instead of just regurgitate them, is so. Important in this field because, gosh, you know the is. I mean, I, I can't, I can't profess to comment on what other NGOs do, but yeah, the kind of very repetitive stuff that we end up doing because that's just how you're meant to do it, as opposed to really questioning whether you could be more effective is just is the kind of challenge we're trying to do with with out of jail, and that's what we're trying to kind of where we're trying to find our. Our, our, our unique place in this kind of field and it, we're a long way off of that but it's very much you know continuing to have conversations with with people like you and trying and continuing to partner with, with organizations like GLAN definitely point us in the right direction so we're really happy about that take care and lots and lots of love thank you so much oh I can't wait to meet you in person Ilham and Marwa thank you so much for listening if you're enjoying Libya Matters please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts this will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saoudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al-Masiri. It is produced by Tariq Al-Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al-Makki, Mohammed Al-Masiri, and Elise Fletcher, Nadaki Swanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Malyunu, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with International Media Support, IMS.